Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to continue our study of, of the book of Hebrews. Just a little more on uh, Dr. Meganson. He was, uh, I meant to say, uh, in, in, in addition to being a, a great minister, he was also influential in the community. There were some newspaper articles that talked about him uh, addressing the businessman's club and uh, they were really sad that what he said, what he was saying at this meeting was, was only heard by a certain few because some people had left. But he was giving them the suggestion that they should advertise Biloxi in the northern newspapers so people would come down and stay at all the hotels that were built. So he was truly a man ahead of his times. I don't know that he was envisioning casinos, but he was certainly trying to to uh, see that uh, Biloxi flourished, and he actually became president of the Biloxi Businessmen's Association, or whatever it was called at that time. So quite an influential fig- figure, and it was fun to read those, those articles. Um, Hebrews 2. Here's some good news to read. It's better than any newspaper. It's God's Word, His holy, inspired, and inerrant Word. Let's give attention to His Word now. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Just pause for a moment. That is the quotation from Psalm 8 that he's listing. He says, It has been testified somewhere. That somewhere is Psalm 8. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood... He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy word to us today. Many people have studied uh, Greek and Roman mythology, maybe back way back in high school. Uh, you, you looked at some of those old stories that uh, the people in Paul's day actually believed. This was their religion. Now, in Greek and Roman uh, mythology, Zeus or Jupiter and the other gods like him lived up on Mount Olympus, and they, they only came down uh, when they were bored, basically. 
And when they came down, it was usually not good news for the rest of mankind. Humanity often suffered because nothing good ever happened when the gods came down to earth. They were no better than, uh, than mankind in the way that they behaved, if you read some of those stories. Well, Jesus, unlike those Roman and Greek gods and any other so-called god in the world, uh, he is different. Uh, we, we read in chapter 1 of the fact that he is crowned with glory and honor and his great space as being the creator of all things and the one who has given us this final message from God that's greater than the message of the prophets. Uh, we, we saw him there in and, 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 and all of his exaltation, but now we see him in this chapter uh, humbling himself and coming to earth. Unlike those Roman and uh, Greek gods, Jesus is not aloof. God is not aloof. Our God takes on human flesh. He dwelt among us. And he came to earth not to disrupt everything and cause a mess, but for the good of mankind. And we see that here. This is the theme of the verses here in chapter 2 we're looking at today. And uh, he's making an argument. He's continuing on to these people who are struggling with persecution. They're, they're ready to give in uh, and, and go back to Judaism and forget about Jesus. It just is not working for them and they're struggling in the society, much like we see Christians in our world today. And I want to look at three things here today. You'll notice here in a couple of the verses it, it says that we see some things. We see uh, verse 8 and 9. Uh, we see him for a little while was made lower than the angels. We see not everything subjected to mankind. We see, we see. So I want to pick up on that theme of what we see. And first of all, first point, what we were supposed to see or what mankind was supposed to be like. And then secondly, we want to look at what we don't see. And that's the predicament in which we find ourselves now. And then thirdly, what we need to see, what the actual the writer of Hebrews is pointing us to, Jesus Christ. We need to see him and, and what he's done for us. Now first, what we were supposed to see. At the beginning of the text, the writer quotes from Psalm 8, a portion of that which we sang earlier in the service. The psalmist was looking back at creation and he was amazed when he saw what God had created and specifically where he had placed humans in this awe-inspiring universe. I mean, look out. I mean, just look at the, look out the front door when you leave today. <clears throat> it's absolutely gorgeous. God created it all and he's put mankind here in this beautiful place and we can, we've got a lot to rejoice in in that respect. The writer of Psalm 8 is doing the same thing. When I look at your heavens, he says, at the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, and surely if he lived here, he would say the beach. He would have said, uh, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels, which he's been talking about in the first chapter. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Now, what is he talking about there in Psalm 8? When God created the world, it's telling us here that he made mankind with dignity and a destiny. 
First, man enjoyed in his innocence God's favor, his supreme favor, more favored than any of the other created animals, birds or fish. He is the crown of creation. God was mindful of him, it says there in verse 6, and cared for him. And he was also, uh, in his innocence, created uh, to be uh, with, uh, a person with privilege. He says a little while, just a little while lower than the angels, verse 7 tells us. And we saw in chapter 1 that angels are for the service of God and for humans. Uh, but humans have a very important place in God's economy. And moreover, he was, he was meant to be a creature in his innocence of unique dignity. The treasured aspect of God's creation, crowned with glory and honor, the recipient of God's special favor. And also, he was marked out initially as a creature of unrivaled dominion. All the created order was under man's control, everything in subjection under his feet. He's echoing Genesis 1.26 where it says, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So you picture Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. God has created them they have this perfectly harmonious relationship with God and they enjoy his presence. Man was given a job of ruling over all creation and creation was in harmony with this arrangement. Work was joy. The ground yielded its fruit without any effort at all. Melba's, uh, our organist, is kind of teaching me how to be a better gardener and, well, I have some plants that I've caring for and, and I'm enjoying the success I'm having under her tutelage and guidance and wisdom. But it's not easy. You've got to pay attention to these plants. It wasn't like that in the Garden of Eden. I mean, Adam rearranged and, and helped things meet their potential, but there were no weeds or bugs and things that caused things not to grow like the, they uh, were meant to. The ground yielded its fruit without effort. The animals, the fish, the birds... They were all not threatened by man, nor was man threatened by them. Spurgeon said in one of his sermons, he said, animals run from us because they know we are at war with their master, meaning God. They were, they were uh, you know, Adam, the birds would come fly. I have a picture of uh, the guy singing Zippity-Doo-Dah in a Song of the South, and he says, Mr. Bluebird on my shoulder, you know, and he's... The birds are all with him and hanging out with him and the animals love him. Adam probably had that experience, but on a greater scale. I mean, he could go up and pet a lion and things like that, which would be really cool because there was no enmity between Adam and nature. And he had dominion over that, and the animals all submitted to him freely and gladly, if that could be said of animals. But something happened. Now we find ourselves in a predicament. Uh, look at the last part of verse 8. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, in, to mankind. Here we have the understatement of the year. You know, not, we're, we don't enjoy that dominion we were created with because of sin, because Adam and Eve ate that forbidden fruit and rebelled against God. 
So that brings us to the second thing. That's what we were supposed to see, but what we don't see. And that's the predicament, the predicament in which we find ourselves now. The picture painted in Genesis 1 and 2 is not what we experience in our lives. As we look around at our world, we see man despising God's favor, abusing his privileges, ignoring his dignity, and limited in his dominion. We thought about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and how great that was. Now think of mankind today. Man's tendency is to reject God's rule over us. We don't want to have him as our sovereign. We run from fellowship with him, just like Adam and Eve, after they ate the forbidden fruit, they hid from God when he came to the garden. They hid from his presence. You know, at best, we keep God in a box and only pull him out when we want some divine intervention for our lives. But to submit to him on a moment-by-moment basis is almost as impossible for us. And look at how we treat creation. We're at war with it. We fight with it to get it to produce what we want and need. I'm growing a few plants, and that's the struggle. You know, think of the poor farmers out there fighting against the, the elements, uh, against nature to produce a crop. We fight with it to get what we, what we want. It yields its fruit reluctantly. Animals run from us or they run after us. I was watching a, a program the other day, I think it was on Animal Planet, uh, and it was outlining or ranking the animals in order of how many human deaths they, uh, they had caused. And I think sharks were number one. But, you know, they gave the numbers of deaths per year for tigers and lions and crocodiles and sharks. And the number is in the thousands. People are getting eaten by nature on a regular basis. Now, we don't see it around us very often. But in Africa and other places in Australia, that happens all the time. I mean, I don't want to get eaten by a crocodile. That's just bad because he eats you, you're gone. You don't come back from that. You know, you don't even, they don't even find your body because he just eats you up. Well, we're at war with creation now. That's not the way it was, was meant to be. We abuse the earth. We exploit it. We waste its resources. Man is certainly not as he was created to be. When Psalm 8 was quoted here, uh, the writer was looking back at Genesis 1, and, and in the latter part of verse 8, he's looking back at Genesis 3, where mankind... Adam and Eve decided to buck the created order. We were put over the earth as humans, but we were under God. The earth was under us. And in Genesis 3, mankind decided it wanted to be not only over the earth, but over God as well. We decided to be our own Lord and our own Master, and the result has been catastrophic. Trying to live apart from God has made us unable to have dominion over anything. The world is out of order. It is in chaos. We can't control ourselves, much less the created order. There's no justice, no control. There's war. Nothing is the way it should be. Hatred, injustice, natural disasters. It's a mess. We live in a mess. But the worst thing that happened according to our text is in verses 14 and 15. Look there for a moment. Which tells us about death 
and slavery to the fear of death. We were not created to die. Humans were created to live forever. But when we decided to live apart from God, death entered the picture. Now, no one likes to think about death. It's a fearful thing, and we suppress thinking about it. But it's inevitable. It's inevitable. Leo Tolstoy expressed it like this in his his, uh, confession. He says, My question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions. A question lying in the soul of every person. It was a question without an answer to which one cannot live as I had found by experience. It was, what will come of what I am doing today or shall do tomorrow? What will come of my life? What is life for? Differently expressed, the question is, why should I live? Why hope for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed thus, does my life have any meaning that death cannot destroy? We live in this broken world, but not only that, we die and eventually will be forgotten. Now, you know I enjoy doing ancestral research, uh, get a kick out of finding out all these stories, some stories uh, from the past that may have been hidden, and you uncover that, and it's, it's very exciting. And as I've looked through my own family tree, I find that there are individuals in the not-so-distant past that I can find literally no information on other than the fact that they were on the census for a few years and I know their birth days and their death days. But any other information I I cannot find. I know where they lived, but I don't know what they did or anything else about them. Even great-grandparents, you know, just a couple of generations away. And this is the human predicament. You know, they talk about our carbon footprint uh, and what we leave behind as human beings in the, in the environment. But really, the footprint of our life is something that will fade away. You know, it's like a footprint out on the beach. You know, it's there, we made an impression, but the water washes it away. The tractors come and they drag and clean up and that footprint's gone. And that's what the Bible talks about our lives. Our lives are but a breath. Here today, gone tomorrow. And And many people are forgotten. Thankfully, in all that depressing point that I just made, the one that Tolstoy was experiencing as he questioned what was the meaning of life, as he found out, Tolstoy found out, there is an answer. Jesus Christ has done something about this human predicament. That's our third point today. What we need to see, and that is this, what Jesus did about it. The writer of Hebrews points us always to Jesus. Look at verse 9. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. What he has done uh, is taken Psalm 8 that was written about mankind and has applied that to Jesus. Now, he can do this because Jesus came down as a representative for mankind. Adam represented us at the beginning. He was the father of mankind, if you will, the representative of all mankind. And when he sinned, all mankind became sinners, and the world became a broken place. 
But Jesus came down as the second Adam, the second representative. He did not remain at the right hand of the Father in heaven, but he took on human flesh and he entered this predicament in which we find ourselves. Adam was our representative in the garden and he failed the test. He decided not to live under God's rule because he was our representative. The world is now a mess and we all are now subject to death and are in bondage to the fear of death like Tolstoy illustrated in his questions. The Apostle Paul tells us that Jesus is this second Adam that came to earth as a representative and he did not fail. He was perfect in every respect. Verse 17. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He came to earth as a human, like his brothers in every respect except without sin, and he sacrificed himself in our place. He took the penalty that was due to us because of our sin. He made propitiation, a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of his people. They're paid in full. Not only that, but he tasted death for everyone, as it says in verse 9. He went all the way as our human representative. He experienced it all for us in our place, and he went through it unscathed, perfect, sinless. You notice verse 10, interesting verse. It was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. What does it mean that Jesus was made perfect through suffering? I mean, It means complete, perfect, or fulfilled. Jesus did not need to be made uh, uh, morally perfect. He was already morally perfect, and he stayed morally perfect uh, always. But to be the perfect author or founder or captive or pioneer of salvation, he had to suffer because he was identifying with humanity. He was being everything that we could not be, that we were not but he was going through it. He, he, he picks up this same theme in chapter 5 where it tells us that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. And that word learn means that he directed his mind towards obedience. He became accustomed to obedience through suffering. He experienced suffering and he was obedient through it. When we experience the suffering of this world, we are not obedient through it. We fall, we sin, we fail. But Jesus went through it all, even to death on a cross, without sinning. The second Adam was different than the first Adam. The first Adam stumbled over the hurdle of obedience, and he was not suffering at all. I mean, he had everything in the Garden of Eden, and God gave him that one little test. You can eat any tree you want, any of the vegetation I've provided, but not this one. And what do you know? He ate that one for no reason whatsoever other than he just wanted to to do it and express his own uh, desire to be God. But the second Adam came and he crossed over every hurdle of humanity. He obeyed perfectly even in the suffering of life. If only he became a man and did not suffer as a human, then he would not have gone all the way into entering our predicament. He became the perfect Savior by suffering, by doing everything we needed him to do to save us. 
It says here in verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. See, we are freed from fear and discouragement. Death is, is not to be feared by the Christian. This would have meant a lot to these people to whom the writer of the Hebrews is writing. And it should mean a lot to us today. Because he himself has suffered, verse 18, he is able to help those who are being tempted. People of the, the, the writer was addressing here in this letter were experiencing much fear and discouragement. Their lives were difficult and they were ready to give up on Christianity. They needed encouragement. Surely we can identify with that because life is difficult and discouraging and the threat of death looms over us. The writer of Hebrews contends throughout this letter that fear and discouragement can be remedied by focusing on Christ, by embracing Him as Lord and Savior. He says, look to Jesus, consider Jesus. And today he's pointing to the fact that even though Jesus appears to be a little lower than the angels, something of, of no account and somebody that you could just throw to the side, he's saying, no, look, he's now crowned with glory and honor because of all that he did for us. And one day all that will come to fruition and we will be restored back to the dominion we were created to have. Our relationship with God can be properly aligned and back in harmony because we have this mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He will restore us. One of New York's most famous murders occurred in 1964. Kitty Genovese was returning in the wee hours of the morning to her apartment in Queens when she was approached by a man named Winston Mosley. Mosley ran after her and quickly overtook her, stabbing her twice in the back right outside her apartment complex. She screamed, Oh my God, he stabbed me, help me. Her cry was heard by several neighbors. Lights came on, but no one did anything. When one of the neighbors shouted at the attacker, Leave that girl alone. Mosley ran away, and Genevieve slowly made her way toward the rear entrance of her apartment building. She was seriously injured, but still no one came to her aid. Other witnesses observed Mosley enter his car and drive away only to return ten minutes later. He systematically searched the parking lot, train station, and the small apartment complex, and eventually he found Genovese where she was lying, barely conscious, in the hallway at the back of the building. And, and out of the view of the street and of those who have heard or seen any sign of the original attack, he proceeded to further attack her, stabbing her several more times. And in the end, he stole $49 from her and left her in the hallway. No one wanted to get involved. No one wanted to risk their lives to help this poor girl. Well, Jesus Christ has heard the screams of humanity. He sees the predicament in which we find ourselves. Broken, lost, our lives a mess. And he has come down from his throne to do something about our predicament. He gets involved with us, not just at the risk of his life, but at the cost of his life. Won't you embrace this one who loves you so much that he would lay down his life for you. Embrace him as your Lord and Savior. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for, for the, 
the great sacrifice Christ made for us. Lord, we think we know better than you do about our lives, and that has caused nothing but misery for us. And Lord, we may not even see it now, but one day, if we continue to push you away, we will, we will know that misery. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes so that we can see that we are, without you, miserable, and that we will run to you. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to, to, to seek you, to find you, to taste and see that the Lord is good. May you transform our lives, Lord, and make us all that you would have us to be. And we give you all the praise and glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen.